You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham, and I'm happy to have with me our writer, Alan Kinsella. Nice to be here. Thank you. And so today we are doing our second episode in a series of discussions that we are having with people who are not politicians, sort of your everyday citizen, who align with a particular political party. And so last week we had a Democrat on, and this week we had a Republican. Exactly. And we say that we're going to have on different parties, and you might hear different views, but you actually might find that you have a lot more common ground with these individuals than you originally anticipated. Nothing that you hear in these discussions is us endorsing them. Essentially, we just wanted to, or any of the views that they have, but we wanted to have a platform for somebody to just be able to share their ideas without feeling like they had to be defensive or that they were being attacked or there was any sort of gotcha element. And we do push a little bit in terms of being a devil's advocate and want to sort of challenge people to think and explain themselves and try and be a voice a little bit for the listener who might disagree with something that they say and keep it civil, you know? And so you'll be hearing the voice of a guest who is going by Thomas for the purposes of this. He talks a lot about his opinion on this particular topic. Right. And we hope that, you know, in an effort to have further discussion, we'll break out of that constriction of 150 characters and have something a little bit longer and hopefully provide you with a couple ideas for your next opportunity to have a good discussion with someone. Perfect. So let's go ahead and turn now to our interview. All right. So thank you so much for joining us. What name would you prefer to go by? Thomas is fine. Thomas is fine. Okay. There's probably a few Thomases out there. Thank you very much for joining us. And you are going to be the next part in a series that we have been talking about asking people who are not politicians. I realized when I introduced this the last time, I sort of said everyday folks, but what I meant by that was people who are not politicians to discuss why they have aligned themselves with a particular political party in the United States. I'm happy to be joined today by one of our most prolific writers. Alan Kinsella. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you. So yeah, well, let's go ahead and jump into this. And we'll start with just the basic question here. We invited you here because you identify as a Republican, correct? Yes, I do. I mean, I don't okay. agree with everything about the Republican Party, but I definitely at least lean in the Republican direction. All right, perfect. Well, let's, let's actually just start there then. So have you always been a Republican or is this something that has sort of developed over time? Since I've started following politics, I've always been a Republican. It's not, you know, something that started. I haven't always voted for Republicans. Okay. But I've always been a Republican. Okay. Was your family Republican as you were growing up? Is that sort of where you feel like you got that influence? No, actually. My parents probably are more Democrat. They're not super into politics. Got it. But if I had to put them in a direction, I would say they lean Democrat. Okay. So how did you think you found yourself sort of leaning more to the right? Well I would say the more I've gone through the history of the United States and, you know, read what the founding fathers have said and have understood our place throughout history, it just seemed to me that the Republican ideals have always just made more sense. Okay. To me, at least. You know, everybody obviously has their own opinion and view of how things turn. Fair. Are there any ideas specifically you can speak to that made more sense to you? Definitely. The two biggest ideas that I take from the Republican Party is limited government is a big thing and the free market. Okay. In terms of sort of capitalism and, and the free market being able to regulate how society sort of works? Yes, capitalism and right, free market. Not having complete control, but being free to, to you know, regulate itself. 
kind of the Adam Smith idea. Got it. Yeah. I feel like I've heard people talk about what they mean when they say big government in two different ways. One of them is the government's way to spend money and collect money from the citizens. And the other one is the government's role in sort of policing the morality of the country. What are your views on that? In my opinion, it's not, and this does break, this is where I do break a little bit from the Republican Party. It's not the government's job to police morality. The government's only real job is to protect individual liberty. And this is an old quote, and actually they don't really know where it's attributed to, but it kind of sums up, I guess, how I feel about government. It's the basic idea that, you know, my freedom to swing my arm around in the air ends where your nose begins. Yeah, I've heard that one as well. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. What specific issues that are sort of contemporary that you might hear people discuss are ones that are you feel particularly passionate about? Well, as far as political issues specifically, I think they all do break down to that kind of ideology of limiting the government's power. Okay. The truth is, I mean, here, I'll give you an example. Healthcare, right? That's a big issue that, mm-hmm. that's talked about a lot today. Yeah, I'll say. So, you know, universal healthcare is something that's getting talked about. You know, should we give the government the power to control that? And, you know, do we need the private sector in healthcare? You know, and, and I understand the democratic point where it sounds great. You know, everybody get, can get health care. Why don't Republicans want that? When you think about it, you know, would you really like your next visit to the doctors to run with the efficiency of your DMV? <laughs> yeah. And to push back on that a little bit, I always like it to sort of play devil's advocate in these, if that's all right, is just because the DMVs run that way doesn't necessarily mean that any government thing would run that way. Well, I mean, we've tried socialized medicine already. The, the VA is socialized medicine, and it doesn't seem they're, like they're too happy with that. And that's on a small scale. Okay. Good example. So I think it's safe to summarize your, your view is you don't think that universal healthcare is a workable idea. Right. Well, I mean, healthcare breaks down really into two ideas, into three points. You know, it's either universal, it's cheap, or it's quality, right? Those are the three aspects of healthcare. You can't have all three. Okay. You know, any system that gets created is going to have two out of those three. Okay. And you think that with free market, you also can't have all three? Even with the free market, I mean, you know, the free market isn't a fix all. It, it, it has its holes also. You know, it, it's the uh, best available system of all bad choices. Okay. What do you think is the government's role with respect to the free market? Well, again, I, I think that the government's role is really to protect private property and to make sure that my rights aren't being infringed by you. You know, and that's really the main role that the government has. And capitalism, as bad of a rap as it gets lately, it's done some miraculous things. So, you know, I can talk a little bit about that too. The idea that here, for example, it's been 50, 60 years since the uh, moon landing, 50 years, 50 years, right? Since the moon landing. Mm-hmm. Right now, 96% of Americans have cell phones in their pockets. That means 96% of us are walking around with more technology in our pocket then NASA got to the moon. Mm-hmm. And that, that's only you know, possible with capitalism. Yeah, I've, I've heard that argument in terms of the, the competition that is, I guess, inherent in that system really sort of seems to breed innovation. Right. Well, let me put it this way. Did you know you needed an iPhone before it was created? I think that I did, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, well, the vast majority of us probably didn't, right? And you know, <laughs> government. So when you when you give control to the government system, you know, you have the government at the top dictating kind of who wins and who loses, and it's very possible and very likely that we wouldn't have had that that kind of system. 
you know, whoever was at the top is the one making the decisions of what gets created. Yeah. I think that could also affect the quality too. And I think, you, you know, you mentioned that perhaps with the phones, if the idea is everyone should deserve a phone, if we talk about that, is everyone going to receive an iPhone 11 plus or something, or are we all going to have to suffice, you know, is something less going to suffice? Same with healthcare. Right. Basically, I mean, the idea of have everybody having an equal outcome, you know, it doesn't always work because everybody can have that equal outcome and it'll just be a worse outcome. You know, do you really care if somebody else has a bigger piece of pie than you if your piece of pie is bigger than it would have been? So you're sort of saying that we would you try and distribute it more evenly than everyone would have less than they do now. Right. Basically. And here, I'll even uh, further break that down. So, you know, a big talking point on the left is the top 1%, right? And the, the horrors of the top 1% and how they're stealing from everybody else, correct? That's a general, I mean, a generalization, but that's an idea that, that the left does portray a little bit that we should take from them. I think that that's a fair characterization okay. for simplicity's sake. So if you broaden that out past the United States, to be in the top 1% of earners in the world, you need about $35,000, I think was the last estimate. So when you broaden that out, I mean, average American income is 58,000. We're all the top 1%. Got it. So it's all relative. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. I'm kind of interested just thinking about, as you've been talking, how the, the sort of underlying values, if you will, the, the two things that you stated with respect to limited government and the free market, how that might continue to be relevant throughout the various issues that have come up both historically and contemporarily in some of the major political, I guess, party platforms. So can you speak to some other like elements of the, the platform that you feel strongly about? I don't know if I completely understand what you're, you're asking. So do you want specific situations where, where it would apply? Or are you asking for a more broad idea of how it works? That's fair. I guess take a specific political issue and how the historical context relates to that. Like, let's just start with something like, like, I don't know if this is one that you feel strongly about, but gun control is an example. Okay, sure, sure, definitely gun control. So, I mean, I believe that the idea behind the Second Amendment is that we all have an inherent right to protect ourselves. And when you do remove gun control, when you do, I mean, put gun control in place and have more gun control, it does leave us in a little bit of danger. You know, there is this crazy idea right now that the same party that's telling you that you know, we need more gun control and that is trying to prevent you from having weapons to defend yourself is also saying, let's defund the police to some extent. So, you know, one point they're saying the police are going to protect you. And then the other point they're saying we don't need them, or at least we should scale them back. Now, those two ideas kind of contradict themselves. One argument that I've heard with respect to gun control, and you can speak to whether or not this is your opinion, but mm -hmm. is that it's not just for people to defend themselves against maybe others, but also to defend themselves against the government. Yeah, I mean, of course. And, and when you see dictators take power, one of the first things they do is remove the guns from the community. You know, that's usually the first thing that they do if there are guns there in place, you know, because a public that can't defend themselves is easy to control. And so you're quite well versed in history, as I understand it. But yeah, I would say that I teach U.S. history, so okay. I would hope that I'm pretty well versed at least in the u.s side okay because so i was going to ask about examples of that and like where various dictators have sort of come in and de-weaponized the citizens well hitler's done it hitler when he took power he took a lot of the weapons out of germany's citizens hands you know obviously weapons weren't as broad as they are in the united states and i'm not saying you know i know there are some libertarians that believe in absolute no gun control no you know no weapon control i'm not saying every citizen 
should have an atomic bomb. <laughs> but, you know, everybody should have something to at least deter the government from infringing on your rights. Gotcha. Sort of switching pace here. But another question I think is particularly relevant is I think a lot of people have talked about, and my experience certainly has been that politics have sort of become increasingly polarized over time. And I think where this also starts to creep in is where we look at things like the courts and Supreme Court judges. And they're, you know, the general idea, I think, for a long time was to have them be as neutral as possible. And now it seems that everyone's sort of trying to put either conservative or liberal judges in those places. And I'm kind of interested in your thoughts on the role of the Supreme Court and whether you're in favor of this or are you not in favor of this or and, and why? Oh, yeah, I could definitely speak to that. The big issue here is how much power the Supreme Court has today. Right. If if the Supreme Court wasn't out dictating laws basically to us from the bench, it wouldn't matter if the judges were conservative or liberal. You know, and this idea that we've become more polarized kind of ignores history a little bit. I wouldn't say we've become more polarized. I, I think that polarization cycles and that, you know, we've gone through periods of history where we've been, I mean, people say this is the most polarized we've ever been. There was a point where we were fighting each other. You know, we were literally at war with each other. Yeah. So to say we're more polarized now than then is, is you know, not really a correct act. I'm sorry, an accurate representation of history. But I do understand that sentiment. What I would always say is if you ask most people, do you trust politicians today? A broad statement, not any particular politician, politicians in general. Generally, most people don't. I think the last number I looked, it was at roughly 25 to 30 percent. Wow. Right. That's pretty low. That's not a very overwhelming number. I mean, I I don't want to, you know, have to ask you, I'm not going to ask you your own personal beliefs, but there are three of us sitting here. I would guess two out of the three of us probably don't, if not all three. And that's, again, not knowing anybody's position, but just blind guessing. With that said, you know, if most people don't trust politicians, why is it that half the country and actually probably a little more than half the country's answer is let's give them more power? That never made sense to me, right? If we don't trust them, why are we letting them do more? Yeah, gotcha. You know, I don't want the government to come in and fix my problems. I want them to get out of my way so I can fix my own. Cool. So, sorry, I got wrapped up in your in your speech there. I got distracted. What I wanted to actually talk about next. <laughs> well, do you want to go? I mean, I can go deeper into the free market also, and we can talk about you know how capitalism really has revolutionized the world. Yeah, and you know specifically the United States, but even more broadly. Yeah, actually, I think that that's a great idea. And and two, I think the underlying assumption or value built into this is that capitalism, as you said, is essentially of all the solutions we have may not be perfect, but you're arguing is the best one. Is that correct? Right. It's the best of all bad solutions. Yeah. Okay. And what, what are the solutions is, are we comparing it to? Uh, socialism and communism. I mean, those are the only three that we really, you know, I mean, those are really kind of the only three. I can't imagine a, a, a fourth one coming out considering that kind of covers the whole spectrum. Would you not consider a dictatorship something like? Well, that's not an economic system. That's a fair point. Okay. Yeah. I mean, a dictatorship generally goes coincide. That's the political system that communism kind of has to use. Because if you're going to tell people to separate things out and to split things evenly, you need somebody holding a gun to the guy who has more. Yeah. It does seem like in the places where it's been applied, the idea that there is equal distribution has never happened. There's always those people who still have a lot of power, a lot of power. Mm -hmm. So anyway, Right. Well, I mean, because at some point, somebody's got to be the one dividing up the money. Right. Right. So, I mean, communism, to me, it, it's a great idea on paper, right? It sounds wonderful. You know, everybody has it the exact same, and, and that sounds like a beautiful thing. And if people were angels, it could work. 
And if people were angels, we wouldn't need government at all. You know, so I think we'd all agree people aren't, you know, aren't inherently angels. <laughs> okay. All right. So then that, I mostly just want to get out of the way that I think there should have, there was a sort of broad assumption about the pros, if you will, of capitalism. So go ahead. And if you wanted to speak to more of what you were talking about with the benefits that have been afforded in that system. On Netflix, there's a, a movie. I'm sorry. It's a series. It was based on Bram Stoker's Dracula. Have you guys seen that? I don't think so. I have not. No, honestly, it's not really. I don't want to say this on the air, but it's not really too worth watching. It's not great. <laughs> but basically, there's a point where Dracula is sleeping for thousands of years. He wakes up in the present, right? He ends up, he walks into a trailer park with a very poor person's home, and he's looking around and he's amazed. And he has this line that I think sums up capitalism and really how capitalism has transformed the world. He says, I knew the future would bring great things, but I never could imagine that it would make them common. And that's what capitalism has done for the world. It's made amazing things common. And if you think about it, you know, Amazon, you can have anything you want delivered to you at your house at any time you want it. That would have, I mean, kings couldn't have gotten that service. You know, so this, this, this is only possible through capitalism. And it's kind of transformed us all into, you know, having this, this life that you couldn't have imagined pre-capitalism. Do you see that from the side of the extent that Amazon is able to operate, or are you speaking more from the consumer side of it? From both. I mean, from, from all ends of that, I mean, you know, Amazon is clearly benefiting. Jeff Bezos, you know, oh, definitely. obviously is, is not living a, a very difficult economic life, but all our lives are better. Give up Amazon for a week and see how much better your life is. You know, it's not really going to improve your life in any way. In fact, it's going to probably make your life a little more difficult, especially once you've gotten accustomed to that. You know, and I find it funny that people who have benefited their whole life from capitalism are talking about the evils and the horrors of capitalism. If you look at the entertainment industry specifically, right, you see all these entertainers talking about how bad capitalism is and it's awful and it's holding people back. But if you think about it, right, these people are there, they're just entertaining and they're making millions of dollars to entertain. Capitalism has turned the court jester into a king. Yeah. Good analogy. You know, and I think this this might actually really be in line with the point that you're already making, but I might expect that an alternative argument would be this is only possible because government has regulated the safety of these processes, has put in safeguards so that, you know, people aren't exploited by the the free market completely. And so I, I already think that I know what you're going to say, but I'm curious to see what your response is to that. Okay. So in some ways, the government does need to safeguard certain things. So I'll give you a perfect example. Child, child labor, mm -hmm. right? Government needs to step in and safeguard that. Children are not capable of making that decision for themselves, whether or not they can go to work. It's just not something we should let minors decide, right? But as far as most other things, I mean, if it's not harming, if it's not something that's going to be a direct harm to the consumer, for example, toothache medicine used to be made with cocaine. Clearly, that's a problem. Right. Clearly, we need to make sure that there's some regulation in the food, in the drugs. But other than that, even things like minimum wage, I think the free market would have found a solution for and did find a solution for for a long time. You know, to tell somebody that they can't work for a certain price kind of to me is, is more of a limitation on the right of the person you're telling that to than limiting the big business owner. You know, if you look at it, the big businesses could probably afford to pay their workers more. But you're going to shut down all the small businesses because they can't afford to do that. So when you know, if you notice, the more we regulate, 
the more the big guy wins. And I know that the regulation people are the ones talking about them. They're the ones looking out for the little guy. But it's hard to ignore that the Walmarts and the Amazons and, and the big guys of the world always get bigger under those systems. So, again, just to sort of follow up with that is... Wouldn't the incentive be for some of those big organizations to just hire people who are going to work for next to nothing and pay them a tiny amount? Well, you get to decide what your work is worth, you know, and you don't have to in a free country. You don't have to you know, choose to work for that person. And just the way that competition keeps prices low for consumers and goods, competition of labor keeps prices high for workers. You know, you wouldn't tell a store. And honestly, this is the difference, I think, between the two sides. On the Republican side, we look at labor as a commodity, as something you have that you can sell, right? Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't tell a store that, oh, you're selling those pencils for too cheap, right? Mm -hmm. So why are you telling a person they're selling their work for too cheap? You know, if I'm in a free society, if I'm making a conscious decision to work for a certain price, you know, why can't I do that? And you're kind of limiting the jobs I can have because if it comes to a store owner, you know, putting a machine in place, or hiring a worker, if the worker's getting $15 an hour or $16 an hour to do a $7 job, I'm just going to put the machine in place. And many of them have, I think. <laughs> right. And, and you see, you know, many of them have. And, you know, there's this idea that, that the machines are taking over and they are going to wipe out jobs and there's going to be some hardship for people, which we need to figure out, you know, how to prevent as much as possible. But that's the other problem. You know, you're talking about stopping innovation to protect jobs. And even the right is responsible for this in some sectors too. And it sounds like the Luddites of old, you know, every time we've gone through an industrial revolution, there's been people who've said, oh, this is going to cause jobs to decrease. This is going to, you know, cause mass unemployment. And, you know, we've always had jobs that people didn't foresee come. Right. Yeah. It always seems like it just creates a, a new market for labor. Right. I mean, they, when the car was created, they said it was going to kill jobs for everybody, you know, and that, created gas stations, created motels, created, you know, all types of different industries that revolve around, you know, that industry. Cool. Another one here, again, sort of switching gears a little bit, mm -hmm. is just thinking about the opportunity that, that people have for discussion about this, because it seems like debates anymore are just a place for politicians to have a, their, stump, their stump speech, and it's, there's not really a discussion about ideas. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering sort of what your thoughts are, and what's the time and place for people to have their ideas and not, you know, I'm sorry, this question is getting too long now, but it's not just the baits either. It's that like people go online and they basically go in their little echo chambers and they listen to their community, tell them that they're right over and over again, mm -hmm. and they don't have to engage with this. So what is an appropriate platform and time and place for people to have open discussions about things like these political issues? Well, you brought up social media. I personally, and I know this is going to not be a big shock because I am a conservative. I don't use social media at all. And not because I have a problem with the companies. And again, this is an area where both sides are trying to regulate a company. I think that they have no business regulating. I don't use it because I don't think it's very healthy in many cases, especially the discourse that goes on on social media. It just breeds bad conversations and it breeds bad intentions, I feel. And I think I, I'm going to misquote this maybe, but I think it was Jonathan Haidt who compared the social media to fast food, right? This idea that we need to eat but fast food isn't very nutritious and it's not a good choice to eat. Same thing with socialization. We need to socialize as human beings, but you know, social media is kind of the fast food of socialization. It'll get, it, it'll get you there, but it's not going to really give you the nutrients you need. That might be generous <laughs> for social media. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> that's okay. Or for fast food. I mean, I don't know. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I also stay off of uh, social media myself. I don't have any accounts on there. I'm always a little intrigued when I meet someone who is similar because it seems so rare. It seems rare, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody is on social media. You can't. And the truth is, as much as me and you talk about being off social media, because everybody else is, we're really not. I'm sure right. you have, you know, images and sound or, you know, something out there yeah. of you that's out there, on, you know, online. Yeah, people have sent me things about me. I'm like, I don't have an account here. I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> right, right. Like I'm right. being tagged in something that I don't exist on. Uh-huh. No, it's difficult to stay away from. I mean, even Twitter. I don't, I don't have a Twitter. I still read Twitter. You're right. All right. It's addicting like anything else. And for me, I guess that's a big part of why I'd stay away from it is because I feel like if I did get into it, I would go down rabbit holes that I'd never come out of. You know? <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. Those intriguing rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. All right, so I actually did want to come back to uh, we got a little track with social media, as well. yeah. <laughs> but just following up on this question of sort of the the time and place for making sure that people have a platform and discourse, an opportunity to really have a you know sort of one to one discussion with somebody, individuals or politicians. Again, I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly. Actually, you know that's great. I didn't specify. I think probably both, but let's start with politicians. Okay, so I mean, politicians. It would be better if they could get onto some kind of long form platform. I think many politicians have this idea that Americans and people in general don't have the time span or the, the attention span, I should say, to grasp these concepts. And in some ways they might be right. I mean, I don't want to overgeneralize, but I think that it's important for them to get that out there for the people that do want the information to get out there and, and really eloquently put out their beliefs and their platform, because that's really how you sway minds. And that's kind of why we live in this bumper sticker world almost. And that's kind of why you do see people stay in their lanes most of the time. So anyway, you know, long form conversation is a good thing. And I would hope that they would do that. But we live in a soundbite world and that's kind of the world we live in. And the Democrats have been very good at messaging for a long time. And this is something that the Republicans have generally never been very good at. It, you know, if you look, free health care, free college, these are bumper sticker quotes. And, you know, I don't want to get into whether or not I think Trump is good or bad or whatever. But before Trump, the Republicans have never been good with that. You know, he's very unique as a Republican candidate because he talks in bumper stickers. You know, build the wall, lock her up. I don't know, whatever his other, you know, he has so many of them. But he talks in bumper stickers and, you know, he gets the message out in three words or less, which Republicans have never been able to do before. You know, so the casual listener, the person who's not really involved in politics, who doesn't have the time to dive deep into the the subjects, they're going to gravitate towards those kind of ideas, you know, because they sound good. But I think it's important for the politicians to get on the longer form platforms and to discuss, you know, these ideas in deeper terms, because there is a large portion of the public that I think they're ignoring that does want that. You know, and you see it with these podcasts, right? These podcasts are getting longer and longer and they're successful. And the idea was always, oh, you know, the public can't handle it, but we're gravitating towards it more and more. But again, with that said, you know, the American public has kind of, I don't want to say they've forced politicians to think that way, but if you look at the last politicians and whether you like them or not, every winner of the presidential election for the last, you know, as long as I can remember and probably even before has been the person you'd rather sit down and have a beer with, right? I mean, can you think of a loser that you would have rather sat down and had a beer with in the last presidential election? We'll stick with just the presidential election that you would have rather sat down and had, an, had a beer with their opponent than them. Forget about policies. Forget about that. Who's the more, I guess, charismatic person? It's always been the winner. 
I feel like I would hang out with John Kerry. Really? <laughs> yeah. Seems like a friendly guy. <laughs> he, he's friendly, but I mean, he does seem friendly. And Mitt Romney seems like a friendly guy, too. Yes. Actually, I also would definitely sit down with Mitt Romney. He seems like Bob Dole would be a character, too. <laughs> but, but both of them will put you to sleep before, you know, before you finish your first beer. <laughs> Sorry, I was just like to, you're challenging me, so I have to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) I know. But I mean, the point is, is that, you know, the more brass, the more polished, the more charismatic person is the one that wins. And Winston Churchill, famous quote I love to say, he always said the best argument against democracy is a five minute conversation with the average voter. Mm -hmm. Seems cynical to me, though. It is, and it's very cynical. I'm a little cynical of a person, but in some ways it's true. People don't vote on policies, and politicians have picked up on that. And I think that in some ways it's the politician's job to get the long form out there, but in other ways it's the public's job to go out there and get the information. We're living in an age where more and more information is available at your fingertips, and people don't utilize it. You know, and, and part of it is that people don't know the best areas to get information. You know, a lot of people are using these social media sites as their news organizations, which to me is is criminal, but <laughs> not actually criminal. But yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I wanted to clarify that in case you have any listeners that are like, he just said he wanted limited government. Now he's locking people up no, <laughs> for social media. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think that we as a public can do a better job of getting the information also. You know, it, it's kind of a two way street. Gotcha. I hadn't thought about that before, that perhaps from the right, whereas the left may have entered that realm earlier, they've created sound bites finally for the 150 character generation, which now kind of completes that circle from both sides, pushing everybody effectively toward the podcast community where you can engage in long form. Yeah. And and honestly, and whether you're a fan of Donald Trump or not, and I'm not, you know, I'm not in many ways, but whether you're a fan of him or not, you have to admit he's gotten people watching. I can't tell you how many people I've seen that never have paid attention to politics before that are all of a sudden paying attention, whether they hate him or love him. You know, he's kind of got that Howard Stern effect. No matter whether you hate him or love him, you're watching. <laughs> that was a really funny comparison. It took me a second to think about that, mm-hmm. but that, that was fun. As far as individuals go, I think that we're seeing, and I don't know, I, I may be biased in this because I am from the right, but I think you're seeing more and more from the left this idea of censorship, this idea of that if somebody says something we disagree with, we need to cancel them. We need to take them down. You know, and you can say that that's a myth that's created. And I know a lot of people on the left have said, oh, that's not true. But I mean, you saw it with that letter that was put out by the person who wrote Harry Potter. What's her name? J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling, yeah. By J.K. Rowling and with along with other people, you know, there were hundreds of names on that letter about, you know, cancel culture needs to stop. And before the week was over, a lot of them retracted that statement saying, oh, well, cancel culture doesn't exist. And it's like, you just kind of bought into the cancel culture after (laughs) you just put out a letter, it needs to stop. You know, they wouldn't have backtracked if cancel culture didn't exist. So I do think that the problem is coming more from the left than it is from the right. However, uh, you know, this idea that, you know, you can never talk about religion and politics at work. I've never subscribed to that. I've always thought that Anything should be open for discussion. You know, there's reason that the First Amendment is the first one that was written down, right? This freedom of speech, because a healthy society can't run without people being able to freely express their ideas. You know, and it's very easy to be for freedom of speech when you agree with somebody's ideas. It's a lot more difficult when you don't. Well, and, you know, being as into history as you are, I think you can certainly speak to the fact that one of the other tactics that governments have taken to have 
extreme authoritarian control is by limiting speech. Yeah, of course. I mean, we see during Adams' administration, I mean, that's very early on, right? The second president. So, you know, he, he had the Sedition Acts where he tried to limit speech. He tried to prevent people from talking. We saw Woodrow Wilson do it during World War I. You know, he tried to also bring back the Sedition Act and punish people. Uh, there's a famous case, Shank v. the United States, in which he tried to punish Shank for passing out pamphlets against the draft. Unfortunately, going back to the power of the Supreme Court, Supreme Court actually sided with Woodrow Wilson on that case. So, you know, to show that the Supreme Court's not always right in their in their ideas. Yeah. But, you know, it's not something new that's come up that we're trying to limit speech in any way. What's new is that it's starting to crop up more, more and more from the public and from the private sectors than from the government. I was going to make a comment that it felt like now it seems to be coming from all directions. Right, right. Maybe it has for a long time, but mm -hmm. just that, like, I think people who are conservative have found reason to argue against it. People who are liberal have found reasons to argue against it. And I think the libertarian view is the one I've heard that's sort of saying the solution to bad speech is more free speech is like, let's get more people talking. Yeah. Let's get more people involved in this discussion. Yeah. And I hundred, I a hundred percent agree with that idea is that the best way to get bad speech out is to expose it, right? Put it out in the light. Let people see how bad the ideas are and talk about, you know, why they're bad and, you know, show the public why something is wrong instead of hiding it and, you know, forcing it underground and letting it fester and grow. Right? That's where we put plants, right? To grow underground. Well, that's where ideas grow too sometimes. <laughs> the potatoes of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> I think Dave Chappelle put it nicely more recently too, right? He said the First Amendment is first for a reason. The Second Amendment is just in case the first one doesn't work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dave Chappelle usually puts things a little more nicely than I do. <laughs> well, that's his job. Yeah. But I, I'll tell you the truth. I had some reservations about, you know, coming even on the podcast to talk about conservatism and republicanism, you know, because you got to watch with cancel culture, things that are common to say, you know, tomorrow could be not common and can get you canceled. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the point of the, this discussion and the series of discussions that we've been having has been specifically to treat people with an open mind and kindness that they can express their opinions and we can have a civil discourse. You know, we can maybe push yeah. back on those opinions. We can agree or disagree. And it, as long as we're, we're, you know, we're sort of honest with each other and kind to one another, then I think that people will hear these conversations and will feel maybe empowered to have their own types of these conversations. But also I'd really just like people to really self-reflect on, we keep treating the other side as if they're evil. Whatever side of the political spectrum you fall on is treating everyone else as if they're evil. And I think people aren't evil. I think that we've got people who just have strong ideas and all we hear disconnected from them, we hear those ideas and then we you know, lump them in this camp of we disagree with them and they do this because they want terrible things to happen. And I don't think that's true for almost anybody. No, yeah. I mean, as far as the American public goes, I, I, I don't think that's true really for any of us. You know, obviously there are some, yeah, but you know, that's the extreme minority on both sides that are really just looking to hurt people. But the problem I feel and what's causing this, this feeling that the other side is evil is throughout history, we've had common enemies we can unite against and we don't have that today. We have coronavirus. <laughs> you know what? And I thought that the coronavirus might be something that we could have banded, you know, all banded around and it doesn't seem even that's be becoming politicized. Yeah. I think partly because it's kind of an invisible enemy. It's not a person we can point to and say, you know, it's this person it's or this country that's that's the problem. Yeah. You know, it's kind of internalized inside the United States, but 
Well, I mean, it's a world problem, but for us, you know, our individual problem with it is internalized inside the United States. Yeah. But throughout history, you know, we've had something to fight, an outside force to fight that we can do side by side together. And with the absence of that, not that we don't have, you know, problems around the world, but not a clear, real problem. With the absence of that, we've, you know, imploded. We've turned in on ourselves. Yeah, I've, I've kind of wondered, I had this probably naively optimistic idea that, like, if we could all collectively decide that, like, global hunger or climate change or some, you know, getting a colony on another planet, I don't really care what it is, but the point being that, like, that's the thing that we all have to work together to fight and beat, that that would be a source of unity. But again, that's probably a little naive. And yeah, I mean, uh, again, if people were angels. But so uh, you brought up hunger, and this is something uh, that I wanted to also talk about when it comes to capitalism and how unique capitalism is and how amazing it is. Hunger itself, right? So the poor in, in the United States, all right, and I want you to think about this because this is an amazing idea. The poor in the United States are more likely to die from an obesity related disease than they are from hunger. And that was only possible through capitalism. Think about that. Poor people today in the United States are more likely to die from having too much than from having too little. Oh, do you have a source for yeah, that? Just go onto the U.S. statistics website. Look up the statistics of people who have died from hunger. I mean, it's virtually zero in the United States. So that's why it's, it'll be very easy for you to show that comparison. I think we all know how big of a problem obesity is, not even just in the poor, but in all aspects of life in the United States. But again, that's, hunger is almost negligible the the amount of people who die from a hunger related disease sources like that i like to link in the the notes for the episode so that people can i mean if you want i can source it and i can send you the links to look at it afterwards after we're done sure how much do you think the way that one would swing on any particular topic is built around the mouthpiece that they hear it from so like how important is it to label i think i've seen comedians or talk show hosts or something go around to strangers on the street list blindly, you know, not say where they're coming from and list a couple different values or ideas about a particular topic. And then they come to find out it's actually coming from who they believe their opposition is. I think that that's all of it. I mean, if you look at, and again, we, we kind of discussed this a little bit, that the Churchill quote, right. And the idea that people, you know, if you look at the last bunch of presidents, the one that you'd rather have a beer with is the one that wins. I think that kind of shows that, uh, you know, people and, and again, this is a broad generalization. I'm not talking about any individuals on either side, but people in general tend to vote, you know, with who they like better, not on policy. You know, most people don't really vote on policy. Turning back to this discussion, we, we sort of started on taxes and sort of you, the role you think the taxes play or, or should play with respect to the government. And your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, look, there are obviously certain things that the government needs to do. And in order to do that, they have to tax. But I think that the taxes that we're looking at you know, it's, it's just completely out of control and they've gotten more and more out of control. At the start of our country, we didn't even have an income tax. You know, that's something that didn't exist. They didn't tax your income. Yeah, actually, I think that I read the first tax was on whiskey. Well, there was a whiskey. There was actually a whole rebellion over whiskey. And, I, you know, I don't want to get too deep into the details, into history and everything. But the federal government had to come in and shut down, you know, a, a rebellion. The farmers didn't want to pay the tax. There was a riot, a revolt, if you will. And, uh, the federal government walked in and you know closed up shop. They stopped it in its tracks. Interesting. But again, the idea of the federal government stepping in, it should be when you're infringing on other people's rights. You know, it shouldn't be just willy nilly whenever they feel like it, because politics always is shifting in the United States. It generally goes eight years of Republican, eight years of Democrat. Here and there, there are changes. After Reagan, we had 
George H.W. Bush. So the Republicans got 12 years there. We had FDR got, well, would have had 16 years if he lived out through his, all four of his terms. You know, so there have been time periods where it hasn't been exactly that. But for the most part, you know, history is on a pendulum. There's going to be a Democrat in office again one day, even though there's a Republican now. So if you give the government a gun, you have to understand one day somebody else is going to be holding that gun. And it's going to be somebody you don't like. Right. You know, so that's why I think the idea of limiting the power that the government has is in everybody's best interest. And just to add to that, when it comes to taxes, if the government's power is a lot more limited and they're not doing as much, they don't need to be taking as much out of your pocket. Got it. So as far as overtaxing, you know, a lot of people have said, why can't we do something like the Nordic healthcare system, right? Why can't we do that? What most people don't know is that they tax their regular citizens. I mean, average citizens at a clip of 60%, 50 to 60%. I don't know if the American public can stomach that. You know, when we, when we fought the revolution, I mean, again, that was a bigger issue because we didn't have representation in it. But I mean, those taxes were paltry compared to what we get taxed at now. So what I was going to ask too was taxes are something I'm going to bring up in all these conversations because I'm, I'm curious. I, th- I think that they're pretty inherently linked to a lot of the platforms that the parties have. One of those inside of that is tariffs and the role of tariffs and sort of what your thoughts are on those. Sure. And this breaks away from the current Republican Party, but is closer to the previous administrations. But I, I don't think tariffs are a good idea, economically speaking. I do understand in certain cases when it's for the benefit of protection, why we might need a tariff. An example is we need some steel made in the United States. You know, we might have to put a small tariff on steel. And certain things like that, that we need made for our infrastructure, that we need made for our self-defense. However, tariffs as an economic policy are a bad idea. They never work. And you're just really picking the winners and the losers when you make tariffs. I'll give you an example. So I'll use the example of steel, even though for you know, warfare, it might benefit us. But economically speaking, if we put a tariff on steel, it protects American jobs. It has more Americans working in the steel industry, which sounds great, right? Oh, you know, we have steel. Steel's made in America. It's going to benefit the American economy because steel's made in America now. The problem with that is that it helps the steel industry, but you're hurting the car industry. You're hurting you know, every other industry that uses steel because they're paying higher prices now for their steel, which in turn is going to eliminate jobs elsewhere. You know, and tariffs are very easy to push as a political platform because you can say, I save these jobs and point to the jobs you save, but you can't see or you can't point to all the jobs that are lost elsewhere because of external issues with paying more for steel. So that's why they're very easy politically, but they are bad economics. There's a great book if you want to really get deep into it for your listeners on economics and how they work. And they do talk even more in depth on the idea of tariffs. It's called Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. Cool. I'll link that in the notes as well. That's a great suggestion. I've mentioned before, but I want to make sure that listeners understand and know that a tariff, as I understand it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially is that a tax that the, if we were in the United States and we are, that Americans would pay on a good to be imported, meaning that it would be then more lucrative to have that good be made in-house because it would cost either about the same or less. Is that right? Yeah, it's a tax on imported goods. Yeah. Simply put, that's what it is. And the idea behind it, as you said, is that if we're taxing goods that are coming in from other places, that means that it would make more sense to make it in the United States. So we'll start building here. But again, that benefits the people building it and hurts everybody buying it. Right. Because then presumably if you were importing it, it was because it was cheaper to import it, which meant that you could 
sell it for less. For right. One I thing. mean, it, maybe not necessarily cheaper. It could have been that it was better quality. I mean, there were lots of reasons. Oh, sure. Yeah. But generally, it benefits you to buy the, the foreign good. That's why you're buying the foreign good. You wouldn't buy foreign goods because, you know, it, it didn't benefit you in some way. Got it. Cool. This has been a lot of fun. I have some more closing questions, but I want to definitely have you let you have the opportunity to just get any, any other major or important ideas that you have that you'd like to make sure you share before we end this call on terms of the values are that you have around this and, and anything, any of the thoughts you have? Just in general, I think that government is best that governs least. And again, with that said, I just want to really bring home the philosophy and the idea that I, that I stated in the beginning is that, you know, government's main job is there to protect individual liberties. And that's really what they should be doing. There's a reason that the constitution was created telling the government what they can do and not telling them what they can't do. Right. Because when you tell somebody what they can do, it really limits their options. You know, if I just made a list of the things the government can't do, that gives them the broad spectrum of everything else that they can. Right. So there's there's a reason it was constructed that way and not a list of things that can't do that the government couldn't do again, because that limits their power. And it's very specifically says any power not granted to the national government then is then given to the states and the and the people. You know, and that's the reason we have a federalist system is the idea that this overarching government can't possibly understand the needs of California and Texas and Nebraska and Idaho. And granted, all those places weren't there in the in the beginning, but they they understood that things were very different back then in the south and the the north. Things were very different. You know, and it's impossible for one centralized location to understand that fully. And over time, we've granted more and more power to the federal government. And I think that's where the issues are starting to sprout up. And that's why people are you know, so infuriated in a way that they never were with the Supreme Court justice picks and with the politicians that are getting chosen because too much power is being concentrated in Washington. Gotcha. All right. So I always like to end on a couple of things, One, at least with these kind of conversations. One is that sort of what, in a brief summary, are your values as they pertain to the idea of politics? I think I've said it over and over again here. I, I mean, I think limited government is is the overarching value that that really needs to be upheld, and and bringing it back to this idea that people don't trust politicians as it, as it is, and giving them more power does not seem to me to be the best response to that. You know, it's like, you know, would you give somebody you don't trust? Would you let them watch your kids? Would you, you know, would you let them into your life in ways that we allow the government? you know, to do all the time. And there are some things that we have to let the government do. And there are some things that we don't, that we choose to, because it's easier, you know, it'd be easier to live at home your whole life and never branch out in your, on your own and do anything for yourself. But is that better? Is that better for you? Is that better for society? And I, I, I just don't think it is. And in many ways we see the government, you know, being treated as a parent figure now, instead of being treated as a government. And then, so, and again, sorry that this sounds repetitive, but the question I have, the one, one canned question is succinctly, why are you a Republican? And I'll tell you, I'm a Republican because it's the best option of all the bad options, you know, to go back into why, you know, why capitalism is great and why, you know, (laughs) I think it's, you know, it's terrible to say, but you know, again, I feel too, that I can't really trust a lot of these politicians and I'm going to side every time with the, the side that that's f- more for limiting them. And, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, 
Even the Republican Party, I feel, tries to put too much power in Washington's hands. But when making the comparison, and you know, unfortunately, things are a binary choice for us. You know, and we can go into ranked voting and the ideas behind that. But as of now, they're a binary choice. And out of your two options, I just feel it's the lesser of the two evils. Would you be in favor of a ranked choice voting system? I think it's a good idea. I would definitely be in favor for it. And I think it would demolish the two-party system to an extent. I mean, you're still going to have the parties, right? Because people are going to need the shortcut. You can't follow everything. You can't, you know, be so informed on every little election that takes place. Not that any election is really that little, but you can't be informed in all of them. And you're going to need the shortcut of this guy probably has my values because he's from my party. But I think it would give, you know, it would really shake up the two parties and make them more inclined to listen to the people when a third party or an independent party all of a sudden becomes a viable choice and isn't just throwing your vote away. I know they've done that in a couple of places in the United States. And one of the interesting outcomes, sorry, we're going to another tangent. I was, I was trying to wrap up, but one of the interesting outcomes was that the candidates actually then worked together to promote one another to say, if you don't vote for that person, or, you know, if you don't vote for me, you vote for that person. And you actually got the opposite of this villainizing that's often mm-hmm. seen in the campaigns. It was, uh, you know, support, these people because you know if i don't win i might be second choice sort of thing yeah i think that's a great way we can uh, revamp democracy a little bit and we can kind of try it out on local levels first like some places already are and then you know broaden it out to the federal level we'd have to amend the constitution a little bit but you know that's a thing that we can do we just have to get politicians on board for doing it yeah not like we haven't done it before yeah, you know, we've made some changes, not many, but we've made changes. Then another thing I like to do is if you have any specific recommendations for resources for our listeners to go learn more about things that you think might be important or uh, just for them to find more information. Sure. Well, I spoke already. Henry Hazlitt, Economics in One Lesson. Excellent read, excellent book to really understand why the free market is the best option. And it's not a very difficult read. So, you know, it's it, even if you're not an avid reader, you can probably grasp it pretty easily. Another book that I thought was great, and I don't want to you know, butcher this man's name, but there's a book on the Nordic system, you know, because that's something that keeps coming up in, from a lot of politicians. Why can't we do things like, like they do there? It's called Debunking Utopia. And the man's name who wrote it is Nima Sandaji. I hope I didn't butcher that. Excellent book. And that's with respect to the medical system there? It speaks more broadly than just the medical system. It speaks about economics also. And the basic idea behind it, it kind of compares both our societies and it shows, you know, why that system actually isn't better. Just to give you an example. So one thing that gets talked about is in the Nordic system, Swedish people, uh, people from, you know, all those different areas, Norway or whatever, they have higher life expectancies than Americans. And that's used to say that their medical systems are better and that's why we should switch to it to one of their systems the difference though is that what he does is he compares swedish people let's say to swedish americans instead of comparing them to americans more broadly because when you do that you know different cultures have different things that they do that can either you know lengthen or shorten their life expectancy that has nothing to do with healthcare. yeah so i mean it's not a perfect way to look at it but it does kind of you, you would assume they have similar cultures, at least. And when you look at them comparatively that way, you know, people from Sweden compared to Swedish Americans, people from Norway compared to Norwegian Americans, and so on, we come out you know, on top every time. 
you know, whether it's economics, whether it's healthcare, whether it's life expectancy, quality of life, their counterparts in the U.S. continuously do better. Awesome. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and being willing to share your ideas with us. You know, it's always, I think, helpful for people to hear sort of a a non-combative discourse on topics like this and get people to just share their ideas and their rationale for them and 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 let's have a heart-to-heart discussion. So anything else you want to leave us with? No, I think it's great that you guys are doing this uh, because uh, a lot of people don't have the chance to hear both sides in a non-combative way. You know, we see them both fighting each other and killing each other and, you know, constantly bickering. And, you know, most of what you hear, even in the debates, are third grade name calling discussions. Yeah. So it's important for them to hear the different platforms and hear the different ideas and put them out there, you know, bring them out to light, like we discussed earlier, instead of suppressing them and putting them down, you know, and that that's ultimately why, you know, even though I had some reservations, I decided to do this because I thought it was important to have people hear these ideas that might otherwise not hear them. Yeah. You know, not everybody's going to agree with, and that's fine. And that's, you know, that's human nature and, you know, not that my way is right, but there are going to be some people that do and say, oh, you know, I've never thought of it that way before. I've never, you know, actually look deeper into this. I never, I've never heard it explained that way before. And that does make sense. In a system where the public is the one who chooses who's in power, it's important to get those ideas out there so they can make the most informed decision possible. All right, very good. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for being with me today, Alan. And I'll, I'll let you know when this is available for you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for uh, listening to me rant over and over and over again. <laughs> oh, we appreciate it. All right, cool. So that'll wrap up the interview that we just did with Thomas about why he is a Republican. Again, I just want to point out like his views that he expressed are his own. I tried to sort of push back a little bit on some of the things that he said here and there just to always play the devil's advocate. But the point here is just being letting people who have these political parties speak. And you know, one thing that was interesting, Alan, I'm curious on your thoughts too, is just that this is not the first time in the last episode people will have heard if they listened but this is not the first time that we've heard our person say that they don't align completely with the political party that they have aligned themselves with. Oh, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think you're finding there's the old adage of diversity within diversity. And I say we're trying to expose that, but not in a negative connotation necessarily, but in a, in a more empowering way to enhance uh, free thinking and, and more individualism. Right. Yeah. To expose the humanity, you know, to, to really reveal that there are people who they're, they're just people, you know, none of these people are evil. None of them are even inherently, they're nothing. We're just people and people are complex. And so I thought that there was a fun conversation. I appreciate his time. I appreciate yours coming on here. And I hope that people got something out of this interview. And what we're planning to do when all this is done is to do a quick summary. And it may be its own episode, maybe a bonus episode or, or just a discussion we have after our last interview. But there was something I've already seen and uh, that is unique running as a thread running through these that sort of ties everybody together. And so I think it'll be worth summarizing that once we've been able to hear everyone's positions. Yeah. So that, that's all I got. You have anything else? You know, I, I looked up a quote that I'd heard um, in regard to traveling and, and leaving your home before. Um, and it's by an author named Margaret Mead. She said, as the traveler who has once been from home is wiser than he who has never left his own doorstep. So a knowledge of one culture should sharpen our ability to scrutinize more steadily our own. And I believe I might be paraphrasing that, but I think that the more that we are able to get a bird's eye view of our own ideologies, we're able to more scrutinize them and see how they align to others or differ further. That was impressive if it was a paraphrase. <laughs> it's like, 
Anyway, great. Thank you so much for recording with me today. Thank you, Thomas, for his time on this episode. Thank you to all of the guests that we've had and will have on this topic. I hope that you got something out of this as a listener. If you disagree with anything, feel free to contact us on social media. Leave us a nice comment. Even if you disagree, keep it civil, please. You can leave us a rating and review. You can email us directly, info at podcast. We look forward to hearing from anybody on theirs. And if you did disagree with both of our guests so far, we still have more coming, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> the plan is to have more coming. Anyway, I hope that this was a, a useful episode and, and people found some value in this. And at the very least, you got to hear someone speak coherently about their reasoning for things without it just being it's because i hate everyone else you know it's because he never once said i'm a republican because i hate Mm -hmm. the democrats and the democrats never said i'm a democrat because i hate the republicans and that's i think where we get the feeling of where people are based on sort of the news and the debates and the campaigns and that's not where people are no and it seemed more unifying a unifying message rather than an exclusionary one yeah exactly and i think that we would all do better if that was the, the basis of every debate or discussion yeah let's let's find where we are where people first and that's what's important about us but as i said we'll summarize this more in a, in a subsequent discussion so anyway thanks a lot and uh, I, I don't have anything else do you have anything else that's about it all right thanks a lot this is abraham this is alan we are out you've been listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.